Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there, Matt, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you, and obviously great weekend last weekend with the touch footy three days of fantastic high Absolutely. quality touch footy. Yes, yes. And the it, feedback. I was going to say, did you get some good feedback during the week? Or? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And you've just got to look at social media sites and look at some of the mm. feedback there, but just the comments, obviously I went down there and had a look around. I wasn't here in Dubbo on Sunday, but I had a look around on Friday and Saturday and just the general feedback from people and the grounds, the people th- talking about it being artificial mm. grass and mm. just even people commented what a great job Dubbo Touch Association did, or they didn't know who did it, but people said to me, there's no litter here even, and there were hundreds of volunteers yes. that Dubbo Touch Association organised. Isn't that wonderful to see so many people step up and say, okay, this is our tournament and we're yeah. going to make sure it's absolutely magical. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. They did really own it and mm. they wanted to make sure that it was a great experience for all these visitors that mm. came. They wanted people talking positively about Dubbo. Yep. So they were making sure they were cleaning up the litter. And you did. You looked around and there was just no litter there at Isn't all. Isn't fantastic? It looked fantastic, yeah. Because that would so. be nice. We could sort of extend that across to, for the rest of the year, everywhere. Right. <laughs> It'd be lovely, exactly wouldn't it? Right. Yeah. So well done to everyone involved in that. That was Dubbo Touch Association, obviously New South Wales Touch, obviously all the competitors from across the state mm. and all our staff as well did a fantastic job and they did make those grounds look magnificent. Well, can't wait for next year now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, mate, straight into it then today, the CSU, uh, you went up there during the week and uh, to welcome all the new nursing students that have arrived there. So how'd that go? Fantastic. And I do love going along working with new students to whether it be CSU or the University of Sydney. It's a, a nice thing, I think, that the mayor of the city bothers to go along and say, welcome and have a mm. wonderful experience. Now, there are visitors. So in this particular cohort, approximately 50 nursing students there. Right. That's and a good number. That's a good number. And of those, about 16 were international, right. with the majority of those coming from Nepal. Ah, yeah. which well, that wouldn't surprise me. I was up at the hospital during the week and a Nepalese doctor there saw you me. Go. There, there you go. go. So, uh, so it is good. And yeah. again, international students in all the universities across the nation, obviously education is a major export for this nation. Mm. We hope those Nepalese students will stay here afterwards. They may not. They may go back home. They may stay here. I don't know the stories of all of those 16, mm. but... The age range is also something that's a bit different. And I do remember this from the very first O-Week intro that I did for CSU many years ago, more than a decade ago. I remember looking out at the audience and I went, gee, there are a lot of people's parents here as well as the students. That's a bit unusual for O-Week. I thought they'd just be students. And I quickly learned that those people that I thought were parents were parents, well, but they were, they were actually <laughs> students as well. So they they did have an age range. And this is probably the same mm. without knowing everyone's age in the audience there as I looked out across the, the 50s students there I thought probably 18 yeah there were some mm. people who looked like they were straight out of school and there were people I would guess who were probably early 30s maybe mid 30s there so mm. it is that age range and what's great about having universities here in Dubbo is that you've got people who might leave school they go into work they get on with whatever they're doing in their life and then as their life develops and changes yep. they might see an opportunity to go either back to education or go to higher education for the first time, a career change. And it's really structured quite well now at CSU. What they've been able to do over the years, I think, is really adapt to what the community needs. And so, for example, the number of days that you've got face-to-face instruction at CSU, Mm. in in the old days, it was always five days. It was a full-time job. spread it out. You may have sort of two hours one day, four hours the next sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, and and that was normal for any university. It was Mm. a full-time job. 
they've really compressed it now, and I can't tell you how many days, but they've compressed it down to a few days a week so that you've got your face-to-face over those days. And mm. if you wanted to actually have a job and still bring money in, yep. you could do that on the other day. So it's, it's not part-time. It's not it? It is. It's, it's not part-time. It's still a full-time degree, mm. but you, you have a, a few very busy days, mm. and then you've got times when you're not actually there. And again, I, I apologise to CSU. I probably should know the exact days that CSU is operational. I don't have a look at that if you want. But it gives the opportunity for people to say, I would like to go and actually get a degree or yep. be a nurse or whatever it might be, but I'm working and I need to be money in for the family. Mm. But it gives you the opportunity. You could go and say to your boss, I can't work full-time, but I'd like to keep working part-time for yep. X number of days a week while I go and do my degree. Oh, absolutely. And it I gives think the particularly, as you say, with... If you've got this sort of uh, situation where you have a number of older students in that scenario as well, now they may have already prior commitments set up there, they may have children, they may have mortgages, all those type of things. It can be a financial strain older in life when you start to go to university. So to have that as a, a compressed option, I think is a terrific idea. Tell me, uh, outside of nursing, is there anything else that's being offered up there right now at CSU? Yes and no. Okay. You can do most of the courses that CSU offers, you can do remotely. There right. are some you can't. There are some that have got practical components, and I'm guessing here, but I assume VET, for example, there are practical components of doing veterinary science. So mm. I imagine, I think Wagga's one place you can do that. I imagine that you need to do that physically on the campus, but there are many other courses you can do remotely. And I think CSU were in a great position when the pandemic hit because essentially they were already doing a lot of remote education. I suppose I'd love to see more physical Mm. components here and I have talked to CSU about that they've obviously got to balance a budget and they can deliver remote education more cost effectively Mm. than face-to-face education. So as an undergraduate type situation or is that that the plan still? That's that's still they still do remote uh, delivery of courses if you like so Mm. if I was going to study and I'm guessing here, but if I was going to study education, for example, I could probably do the majority of that in the first few years until I started to need to do some practical components. I could probably do that remotely. So I could do it living here in Dubbo, okay. but I, I wouldn't be physically but attending lectures. But you know, physical one-to-one contact with the lecturers. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And one of the things that I certainly found from my university experience was that it wasn't even just being in the same room as the lecturer, but it was the interaction you had with your fellow students. So mm. when mm. you're sitting around with a group of people that are talking about things. You might do some work on a, uh, an assessment together. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of value, in my opinion, in oh, that part of the education. Sure. Workshopping ideas, the social aspect of it as well. When you're sitting at home or you, you might sit somewhere that's comfortable to do some of the online education, mm. it's not that same interaction. Now, I'm not having a go at CSU here. Mm. They've got to still deliver what they can deliver. And mm. I'd still rather CSU be in Dubbo well, they're not being Dubbo, mm. I would love to see some more of those physical courses. Education is one that used to be a really big course yeah. in, the, in the past. But, well, the education one's a good one, isn't it? Because uh, they used to offer primary education as, as one of their undergraduate degrees, and you can actually go up there and do it internally up there. Has there been any discussion about maybe bringing it back? Well, I've certainly discussed the idea, but okay, good, I, don't, good. I don't control the purse strings at CSU. They would love to see it back there. Obviously, many of the staff would love to see it back there, but again, it's I assumed it's all about balancing a budget and mm. making sure they've still got a viable university 
while being able to deliver as many things mm. on the ground as they possibly can. Uh, it's a great campus up there at CSU. They've got great accommodation up there at CSU. So all the pieces are in place. Yeah. But again, the world has changed. And even the fact that they're cutting back now from being five days a week to being mm. less than five days a week, mm. even that's a change to almost acknowledge that the world is changing. We've got to change along yeah. with it. And there are so many universities now that offer online study. And some people prefer that idea of sitting mm. at home and studying, which is fine. Well, it's a very CSU competitive marketplace, isn't it? Really? Oh, it is. It is absolutely right. So, yes, I'd love to see it there, but I can't tell CSU mm. what to do. And mm. CSU obviously are looking at the future and to see where they're headed in terms mm. of CSU and education overall. Mm. But uh, while we've still got them here, fantastic. And while we've got nursing students there, Absolutely. that's great as well. Well, that's the big folks. A big welcome to all the new nursing students. Last weekend, uh, we chatted about this uh, very briefly there, that you're heading on down to Bathurst for the Bathurst 500. Um, now, yourself and the Deputy Mayor went down. Um, how was the day at the races? Well, it is a good day, and this isn't the Bathurst 1000, as people of our age would know. This is the, the one that Newcastle used to have, isn't it? Newcastle had this, yeah. and I won't talk in detail about the politics of that, but... Mm. I think, in my opinion, from the outside in, and I haven't talked to the to the Newcastle councillors or any anyone from council there. I've only looked at it externally. Mm. It seemed to me like it was a great event for Newcastle. And I know friends of mine from Dubbo who'd gone across to the Newcastle 500 mm. and thought it was a fantastic weekend and looked at what it did for their economy. Imagine Touch Footy, for example, with even more people. So mm. great injection mm. to their economy. But it seemed like there were some people who weren't happy about the fact that there were roads closed off and noise on that weekend. And mm. I probably would have looked at that and said, well, yes, I understand for some residents that's a bit annoying, but for the greater good of the community, surely it would have been a great event. For whatever reason, Newcastle decided not to go ahead with that. So Bathurst were very quick to jump on that yep. and said, okay, we'll We've have the, the first round. We've got yeah. it all set up here. The and it's a, it's a tricky one for them because they're limited via legislation to only five races a year or five events a year. Oh. So they hire it out to yeah, right. supercars for the Bathurst 1000 yep. or as I said before, the old Hardy Ferrodo. Yep. So that's hired out for that. That's one race weekend or one event weekend. There are four other events mm. throughout the year, one of them being the Bathurst 12-hour. I was going to say that this, was there a, a, an overnight race they used to run or something as well? Was there a 24-hour race they used to do years ago or...? I don't remember a 24-hour race. Maybe there was a motorbike race. Right, but okay. uh, but uh, Well, there used to be the Castrol 6-hour, which I'm sure was a motorbike race. Yep. I don't think that's run anymore, but there's the Bathurst 12-hour. Okay. And that's for a different style of car than the supercars mm. and the V8 supercars. Is that the Porsches and things like that? Exactly right, yep. yeah. So the, the problem they had was they're limited by legislation to the five events. They can't really go along to any of these other long-standing events and say, well, actually, we've got this opportunity to bring the... 500, the Newcastle 500 to Bathurst. So mm. we're going to can your weekend this year. Obviously, from a uh, an ongoing relationship perspective, that wouldn't go down well. Mm. So they had to be a bit clever about how they did it. And so what they did in the end was they had the Bathurst 12-hour one weekend. The next weekend was the Bathurst 500. So they classified that as one event and ah, had a, a okay. festival of motorsport yeah, during right. the week. So they could actually get away with that by saying the fact... <laughs> get away with it. I'm not sure if I'm going to say get away with it. I can say it. They, there it is from the point of view of the, the that's that's how they sort of did it. Okay. What, what they did is they looked at the legislation, they yeah. talked to the minister and got some legal advice around it all, right. and essentially they were allowed under the legislation to 
get away with it. <laughs> to, to classify that as one event. So I thought yeah. that was very clever and, and well done there. Yeah. So it's always good to go and talk to other councils and other mayors and other general managers to see how they do things mm. and what they do. So it was good to catch up with the mayor. Dr. Jess Jennings is the mayor down in Bathurst. So okay. catch up with him. And I, I did quiz him about that and said, how did you go through the process? Mm. And so we got the, the long version of that story, which was very interesting. Mm. So that was good talking about the event, and there's a different crowd. So the previous weekend with the 12-hour, there was a different crowd that supports the 12-hour than the right? supercars. Yeah, okay. so they did actually find So they're very loyal, these uh, these sort of racing enthusiasts. They're sort of loyal to a certain type of brand of car, maybe, or a certain style of racing. A certain style of racing, I think, would be more mm. accurate. And mm. so there were certainly, I uh, talked to some accommodation providers who were at the in, in the mayor's suite there, and they actually said that the people staying the previous weekend were certainly a different style of okay. people that were staying the, the following weekend. Yeah, so right. that was different for them as well. Yeah, yeah. And I met, we got to do a grid walk, so that was good. I haven't done a grid walk before, but I, yep. I did, got to do a grid walk. And so one of the drivers there, his father was there on the on the grid walk just beside me. So I had a bit of a chat to him. He's from Victoria, but he pretty much follows his son around mm. to every event where he mm. can. So most weekends there's a V8 supercars race on. He's there at the event, which nice. I can understand. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But again, very proud day. Well, exactly right. Uh, one of the things that's nice about these events as well is just the people you might get to talk to as well. So in the suite mm. we had Sam Faraway, who's an MLC based in Bathurst. Yep. Uh, but he, uh, again, uh, he's a National Party, so in opposition. He used to be Minister for Roads or Regional Roads it might have been, but mm. certainly had a good chat to Sam about a variety of things. Andrew G was there, the Federal Member for Clare, so he represents that area as well. Paul yep. Toole, former um, Deputy Premier of the state, was there as well. So again, it's, it's just a chance to catch up with some of these people, mm. some councillors from Bathurst as well. And again, just how do you do this event? What's mm. the benefit of this event? How much money does it bring into the community? How do you work out that? What data do you have? Just all those sort of questions mm. there, uh, just to well, find it's, it's out interesting about It's interesting because um, you've, you've managed to sort of get around a little bit over the last few uh, months or so. You got up there to Tamworth to check out the Country Music Festival. You've been mm. down there to Bathurst. Do you see any commonality? Uh, that sort of runs in putting on these major events. So you've seen a few of them now. Do you see any sort of commonality there that you've sort of picked up and gone, well, that's a really important thing that we need to put into some of our major events? I think one of the things that's crucial is that it's okay for Bathurst to have a big race mm. and for Dubbo not to have a big race. It's okay for Tamworth to have a big country music event mm. and for Dubbo not to have a big country music event. You end up finding your niche and then run with that niche. So sort of create your own identity. Create your own identity. And people here Bathurst, they probably, many people outside regional areas, you hear Bathurst, many people would think of Mount Panorama, they think of car races, and mm. that's okay. They hear Tamworth, they think of country music, they hear Dubbo, they hear, think of Taronga Western Plains Zoo. Mm. You get your identity, you find your niche, and you run with that, and you run with it hard. I think it would be silly, and I'm not telling Bathurst how to, to do things, but I think it would be silly for Bathurst to say, great, we've got this race, now let's see if we can get a big country music event, mm. just like Tamworth's got it. Mm. And I think it'd be crazy for Tamworth to say, we've got a country music nail, that's fantastic. Now, mm. let's see if we can get a big car racing event and really be known for a car racing event and country music. I think it's okay to have a niche and to focus on that. Mm. And they do run these events in different ways and they do provide different ancillary events. Tamworth, for example, really started as a one-night country music award back in 1972. It was a a dinner almost that it Mm. started off with, and now it's grown and grown and grown. Now, when you look at Bathurst, it's one big race, the Bathurst 1000. Then they've got other events that have been added on over the years. Mm. And then they tried this concept with 
a festival, a week-long festival. Mm. Now, as part of that festival, they had different events during the week. They had a Wiggles concert. Oh, right, now, okay. You wouldn't think yeah, a yeah. Wiggles concert is a thing you'd immediately associate with supercars, mm. but again, it's trying to look at can we appeal to a larger audience, mm. what is the audience, but mm. it's still focused around, not the Wiggles, focused around mm. motor cars, but it's still focused around the primary event here is Mount Panorama and a car race. Yep. Now, what else can we add on to that? And Tamworth the same. They've yep. built up that over 10 days now, that whole event runs, where they've started off with one night, mm. an awards night, and now you still have the Golden Guitars as part of the whole Tamworth event, but there yep. are other events that are held, other things that are built around that. So it's almost like you're sort of saying here that uh, for so many of these events, these major events now, like let's say Tamworth for argument's sake, start off as a very small operation. I'm assuming it would have started off probably with volunteers with a bit of an idea, a bit of a concept, let's get this up and going. It's moved to the point now where it's probably a, a significant event now. It's running for normally you know, 10 days type thing. What's How does council involve themselves in these type of events? Well, <laughs> they do now mm. almost because they've, gotten to that size. I don't actually know the history of Mount Panorama and who owned the mountain in the early days and how that was run. At the moment, though, Bathurst Regional Council owns Mount Panorama mm. and they lease it, or they have long-term lease arrangements with different companies like Supercars, for example. So over that weekend, they basically lease it out to them and say, there you go, we don't want to run the event. We aren't an expert. Bathurst Regional Council are quite aware of the fact that their forte is not running a supercars race. Mm. Supercars are great at running mm. a supercars event. Could you almost use the analogy, that, that, say, like last weekend, the Dubbo, the, the touch football scenario? Council was heavily involved in the preparation for it, but didn't actually run the event. They left that to New South Wales Touch to run the event with Dubbo Touch Football. Is it a similar situation like that with Bathurst in the sense that Bathurst City Council helps set up everything in regards to it, but they don't actually physically run the event? Yeah, so they don't run the event, and I probably don't know enough of the details about every event that happens, those five events throughout the year. Mm. But essentially, my impression is that they say, we've got a great facility, we'll make sure we've got that facility in good condition and basically have it ready for you and we'll lease it out to you mm. for that weekend. And in the background, I'm sure they help with some of the promotion, but mm. the supercars themselves, obviously they do a lot of promotion for that, but it's not mm. just supercars. The 12-hour race is not run by supercars, so that would be another one that they would run mm. differently. But again, Bathurst don't say, Bathurst Regional Council does not say, okay, we're going to put on a car race. We're going to mm. invite supercar teams to come out. We'll organise the sponsors. We'll organise the film crews to come out. We'll organise the trophies and the prize money, all the rest of it. They, they say... We aren't experts at that. Mm. And if we did that, we would do it, well, a maximum of five times throughout the year. And so yeah. what do our staff do the rest of the time? And do we really want to have staff employed to do all of that? Whereas, obviously, supercars, they're running an event every mm. second weekend, just about, sometimes every mm. weekend. So but that's their forte. What about all those other little events that run uh, in association with the actual race itself? Like you mentioned the Wiggles concert. Are they also organised by a separate entity or are they? is there a major committee group that sort of runs this or how does that run? I think that one in this particular instance to get their week-long motor event festival, yes, yes. I suspect that Bathurst Regional Council would have had a much bigger say in those. They would have had to go and organise those to, to be able to do that. Mm. But if it was a normal, say the Bathurst 1000, a normal event, I think that the way they would do that is they would lease the circuit to supercars. Supercars mm. would organise the whole race event and then it might be 
Bathurst Regional Council might be doing some things around the edges of that, but there'd be lots of groups as well who know mm. that we've suddenly got a big influx of people. Mm. I think there might be somewhere in the city of 200,000 tickets they sell over yeah, a Bathurst right. 1000 yep. weekend. Yep. So you get a large chunk of people. So if I'm a business or some other type of uh, organisation that caters to the the particular um, crowd that comes mm. to that event, then I say, well, what am I doing that weekend? I'm going out to Bathurst. It mm. might be that I hire out some rooms at a place there to run some event that appeals to motor racing enthusiasts. It might be that I go out there and actually hire some space on the, the circuit to sell my products. There's always obviously mm. tents and uh, tents, probably not the right way, marquees for various products that you can go along and buy. Like I'm talking hats yep. and also things. Supercars would obviously have a large say in that as well. So, yep. It's a it's a fine line there, but I, I think most councils don't say we're just going to go and run this event. Now, Tamworth is now essentially run by Tamworth Regional Council, mm. but again, they've got a, a dedicated committee to that, and that's so, a, a major event for them. So with Tamworth scenario, you've got a situation right there. So so council funds the, the running of that? Is that 100% funding, or is it a volunteer base as well up there? Or oh, I think it's at the point now where a significant amount of funding is spent by Tamworth Council to run yeah. the event. But again... Well, it's an international event these days. It you is. Know, and like they, they come from everywhere for this. And they run the major event, if you like. So they, they run the, uh, say, the Golden Guitar Awards. They, they would be a, a major part of that. Hmm. But they don't organise every event throughout yeah. there. So, for example, you walk down the main street of Tamworth and there are lots of stands set up along there. So they would say, we've got space for hire. Mm. And then someone who says, I sell cowboy hats. I'm going to go and hire a space along the main street there. Mm. So there are other events that are part of it. There are other areas that are run on the back of what yep. started off, as I said. Are there a lot of volunteers that are still associated with these type of events? There would have to be. I, yeah. I, again, I don't know enough about the individual details, but... Absolutely. I mean, the Olympics has volunteers. Yeah, that's right. I remember the Sydney Olympics. Yeah, yeah. My mum volunteered at the Sydney Olympics. So yeah. you've got major events that are spinning over major dollars, but people still mm. want to be involved with it. So they would have to have volunteers associated mm. with that. Again, for the Country Music Awards, for that awards night, I'm sure the people that are running that get paid. They're running a major event. But through the week, I'm sure there'll be people around there that are volunteering to help people, point people in the right direction, all sorts of things. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so fair enough. It's, a, it's an interesting one. But again, it's good to get down there and actually talk to people and be Absolutely. at events and just experience yeah. those to see how we can apply some of that learning or those learnings mm. to what we do here in Dubbo. Absolutely. Now, speaking of which... It's actually quite a nice little segue, actually, in regards to that, because I'd like to now talk about uh, one of our major events, the Dream Festival. You had a chance to have a meeting uh, during the week with some past committee members from the Dream Festival to discuss the nature of its future here in Dubbo. Um, I don't think at this point in time it's uh, at the point of saying we're going to drop the Dream Festival, but I think there's obviously a point where we need to sort of talk about the nature of the running of the Dream Festival. I think this is more in, in line with which way Council's thinking here. Am I correct in saying this? So there's a bit of history I'll go back through to start with. It was probably around 2010. I was on council at the time. Councillor Peter Bartley was keen to see some type of iconic event and mm -hmm. maybe looking at things like the Elvis Festival, things like the Tamworth Country Music Festival, trying to work out a way that we could have a major event as well. And so that's fine. Uh, as a councillor, go off and, and do that and try and see what you can arrange. So they put together a committee, they talked about a range of things and they came up with DREAM. So DREAM stands for 
Dubbo Region Entertainment Arts and Music. Mm, so, nice. and that was before Dubbo Regional Council existed. It was Dubbo yep. City Council, but Dubbo Region because it wasn't just about mm. Dubbo. They were so before their time back then. They before their time, That's they right. knew it was coming, obviously. And the first Dream Festival would have been around 2011. Mm-hmm. So, I'm pretty sure the planning started in 2010. The, the discussion started in 2010, and then it started mm. in 2011. Now, council. The involvement of council was really we'll give you some money to get you kick started. Twenty thousand dollars was allocated from council to help Dream get going. There was a volunteer committee committee started, and the whole idea from the beginning seemed to be that it was a bit of everything: mm. entertainment, arts, and music. So it can be a range of different things. They came up with the Artist of the Year dinner. I know my niece Kelly Dickinson, who's now passed away, but she won that mm. award one year. For example, she might have been the inaugural winner. Even yep. there were different events that were held. There were, uh, I suppose, the opportunity there to run events under the dream umbrella to expose a lot of culture in terms of things that we had to offer in entertainment, arts and music. So that all seemed fantastic. And those things start and away they go. Now the second year, I think the funding went up to $40,000 from council to help the committee out. And the committee was going along and running that. So it went along and it morphed and changed over the years to different things. There were things like Zookustic out at the zoo yes. after the amalgamation. There was an event down in Wellington called Fong Lee's Lane, which mm-hmm. then came under the Dream umbrella. There was certainly the Lantern Parade that started. I don't know exactly what year the Lantern Parade started, but that yeah. started as a popular part of that process. So it was probably going along trying to find exactly where it could fit mm. in terms of what events were part of that. And I suppose part of the big challenge for the Dream Committee was that it was a big event. It was a month-long event, effectively, and Mm. lots of things along that event. And again, a volunteer committee doing that. It was probably around 2019 or 2020 that – actually, no, I'll go back a step – I found a newspaper article from around 2015 that was had me quoted in there as the mayor at the time that talked about Dream and said that council had allocated that $40,000 again. They'd done that each year after that first $20,000 in the first year – but the council discussion at the time around that allocation of money were in the mind to say, oh, you've had the 40 grand for a few years now, you're up and going. Is it time for council to start to scale back that money? Mm. Because we probably shouldn't be propping it up every year. Yep. And there was a quote from me at the time on an online source that I found that was talking about the fact that, yes, councillors have allocated $40,000 again, but we really want to have a good hard look at it next year. That would have been the 2016-2017 financial year mm. because we just want to make sure it's the best place for us to be putting our money. An amalgamation happened, of course, 12th of May 2016. Yep. So once the amalgamation occurred, you had an amalgamated council and you had no councillors. So the $40,000 kept being allocated because it had been a standard allocation. So I don't think it was looked at with as quite a, a sharp focus. It got to around 2019 and it got to the stage where the committee, and again, having talked to some of the committee this week or former committee members, mm. it was almost, we're a victim of our own success. It's so big now that we just can't keep running it. A volunteer committee, it's too big for a volunteer committee to run it. Mm. So council- You're saying it was up to running for basically a month. Is that right? So they had activities going for a month. Yeah. And, and again, this is part of the tricky part okay. of it. There were activities that were under the dream umbrella, mm. but the dream- committee didn't necessarily run though. So Zookustic at the zoo yep. was run by Taronga Western Plains Zoo. Okay. Great event. And I'd been to Zookustic yep. a number of times and thought it was a fantastic event. Yep. And sitting out there in that environment, listening to live music, wow, mm. Well, mm. who would want to do that? Yep. But Dream Committee didn't need to organise that. It just came under the umbrella. So okay. there were, were events right. like okay. that. Fong Lee's Lane was another one that was the same. So it was still a month-long event, but it wasn't 
you weren't as a committee member weren't organising every individual mm. event along okay. that process. So it got to that around 2019, 2020 timeframe and council effectively said when they met with the committee, sure, we understand it's too big, it's too hard for you to continue to run it, we'll take it over. And it seemed to be a general understanding of we'll take it over for a year, see how it goes mm. and then go from there. Now that was to basically run it in the 2020 year of course COVID. a little thing yeah mm. called covid came mm. along in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 yeah, that's right so the resolution from council which goes back to the last council which was yes we'll take it over and there seems to be a bit of discussion around whether that was the intention to take it over for a year and then see what happens or take it over forever but mm. ignore that for the moment we got to 2022 and it was going to run in 2022 and the main part of that was the dreamland parade we actually had about $37,000 from the state government, which was money, there were different grants available to kickstart things after COVID. Okay. Yep. So that was fantastic. And I, I must say congratulations and thank you to the Macquarie Credit Union. They'd been big supporters of Dream as well. They typically put in around $15,000 yeah, a year. Right, okay, yep. And so they were still supporting it. But 2022, bit of a freak weather event. So the Lantern Parade, which was the mm, central part right. of that, yes, yes. didn't go ahead. Got to 2023. And finally, the commitment the council made way back in those discussions around 2019, 2020, finally council could deliver on its promise, on its resolution of council then to run it in 2023. So it ran in 2023, the Dream Lantern Parade and some other events throughout the month. Mm. But the, the Lantern Parade is the main thing that people were involved with in terms of organising that and our yeah. staff. So now where we're at, all that history, that was mm. a, a long That's good because it, it gives Sorry. context yeah, in regards right. to where it's at. So we've still been giving $40,000 a year to it. In the one for 2023, we had the $37,000 from the state government still, mm. had money from sponsors. So it, it's an expensive event to run. And our staff basically were involved in that for, for several months, just doing their normal job, not volunteering after hours, but doing their normal job and, and organising the various parts of that. Mm. It's at the point now that this week we've got committee meetings coming up and there's a report that will go through our committee meetings to say to councillors, what's the future of DREAM? Now, remember the decision won't be made at the committee meetings. They won't be made till two weeks after the committee meetings at a council meeting. So there's still time for people to give their feedback. And we've talked about this before. I've written a mayoral memo several weeks ago on this particular topic. We've talked about it on the podcast. Mm. It's been discussed a little bit at some different meetings. So Spark, for example, is a, a cultural committee. And so it's been talked about at Spark. There's been some individual meetings held. And during the week, I was keen to have a meeting with former committee members mm. just to get their feeling on where it was at and just to give a bit of a context, I suppose, of council's view and want to hear from them. So you're saying at this point in time that a lot of the feedback you're getting from the, the ex-committee members was the fact that it had got too big. And from a volunteer point of view, it had got too big, therefore they are in a position where they had to pass it over then to council because of... Uh, the amount of time it was taking them to be involved in this uh, as a committee. Is that correct? As a volunteer committee member. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I think, and sorry, I'll go back as well. We also held a workshop on this on the, the very beginning of February. We held a workshop councillors just to discuss it as well. Because again, what you want to do when you make a council decision and you remember that this council only has the ability to make council resolutions, mm. binding resolutions of council at a council meeting. Whereas the last council, which did cause some issues, mm. gave delegated authority to the committee meetings, which I certainly didn't agree with, and mm. this council doesn't do that, apart mm. from tenders, which is a separate scenario. But the before you get to that council decision, you want to have some discussion in the community, you want to have some discussion with different groups, you want to have councillors have time to think about these things. So the process started, if you like, 
back in the beginning of February, the decision won't be made till the council meeting in March, at mm. the end of March. So there's a, a bit of time there to have some discussion there. So the committee member said, too big. Yep. Need to look at that and need to basically let council run it for us. Now, we've run it in the 2023 event, and that's where our staff have got a report that will go through to the committee meetings this week. And essentially, that in that will be, what do you want to do with the councillors? Mm. Do you want to keep the same model we've got now where council staff run it? Now, again, there's a cost to council to run it with our staff, and there's a cost just in normal work they do, and also in overtime, there's weekend work, that type of thing, because we're paying our staff to do that. There's a cost in the $40,000 that we hand over, keeping in mind that last year, $30,000 of that $40,000 went straight to a business in Lismore who provided the lands, the, oh, light, the large that's, that's lands. The, that's 75% of that's the That's 75% actual, of that funding, yeah, and that's right. going to somewhere out of town, which is not yep. great from my perspective, no, no, no disrespect no. to the Lismore business, but to my money, I want to spend as much money as I can locally mm. as I possibly can. Yeah. So there's all of that. So basically, councillors, do you want to run it again? as we have done now where council runs it and effectively we're organising the entire event. Do you want to keep giving $40,000 to it? Do you want to give more money to it? Do you want to mm-hmm. give less? Do you want to stop having council staff run it? What do you want to do? And a bit along the lines of Tamworth and Bathurst, and mm-hmm. we didn't really talk about parks and the model they have there, yeah. but we don't really have staff allocated to run events. We've got event staff, but they're there to help facilitate when Mm. someone comes along. And I had one just the other day, they want to run an event in November and they asked me what to do and the advice, I said, sure, we've got our events team, talk to them and they'll give you advice about the type of venue that would Mm. suit what you're doing and the context you would need for this sort of thing. But they don't say, sure, tell us the details and we'll take over and run that entire Mm. event for you. Mm. So that's the challenge we have if our staff keep running it internally. Now, one of the discussions we had, certainly the one with the former committee members, the general discussion there was you might want to rationalise it a bit rather than have a month-long event. You might want to refine the focus and get it back to just having a single signature event and let it build from there. Maybe you want to get volunteers more involved again mm. because one of the issues our staff found was when you've got a volunteer committee and you go along and talk to a hire company and say, we need some chairs for this event. Can we hire some chairs? By the way, we're the dream volunteer committee doing this for the community. Can we get them cheap or can you sponsor them? Then you sometimes get a good response from Mm. those businesses. When council turns up and says, oh, we need 200 chairs for this particular event sitting in the park there. Oh, it's for the dream committee. We're doing that. Could you give to us a bit cheap? Most businesses would say, well, hold on. Your council. Your council. Yeah. I pay my rates to yeah. council. You've got enough money. You can afford to pay for it. So yeah. it's actually more expensive for council to run an event rather mm. than a volunteer committee. But just thinking there, just while you're speaking in regards to it, is there an opportunity here to maybe outsource the, the running of this event through a, a volunteer group that already exists in town? In, in the sense, I'm thinking possibly, and they, they love me for saying this, but maybe like a, a rotary club or a group of rotary clubs maybe together, council pays them $20,000, $30,000 to run the event. And they then use that money internally back into the community. So the money then goes back into the community side of things, but it goes to a, a volunteer group that's already, they've got their structure set in place, they've already got their people there, but it actually becomes a fundraising for them as well. That's on a short income base. Just thinking out there, just sort of looking outside the square in regards to how can we get maybe more volunteers involved, but obviously make it, financially viable for them in the sense that if, as an organisation that's already sort of set up possibly to assist council in running it through. Because I'd imagine if you're taking council staff away from their normal job to be involved in running it, that's an extra cost. 
Yeah, there is an extra cost for that, which you know. hasn't necessarily been calculated and all of that. And so that may well be the model. This is all for councillors mm. to decide. Just throwing it out there as an idea. Yeah, and yeah. it did seem to me that if – so one of the questions that we were asked when we had a discussion around the table around with some of the former committee members over the years, one of the questions was asked was, what does council want from this event? And I actually said, well, that's a little bit irrelevant what council wants from this event. It's what the community wants for this mm. event. And so – I know there was some discussion around there that if the community wants this event, if they think this is an important event, then it really needs to be driven by the community, led by the community, and basically deliver what the, the community wants. And council can be in the background supporting it in whatever way. Yeah. That may be in cash, but we're obviously always trying to look at our budget. Maybe mm. it's not in mm. cash or maybe not as much cash, but it might be in the same help that our events team would give to anyone that comes along and approaches council and say, here's where you do booking for this or here's a good time of the year to do that or whatever it might be. So mm. a range of options. It might be handing over to an existing organisation. It might be forming a new organisation mm. and maybe part of the problem was because it started off – and it was probably ambitious to start off to have a, a big month-long event. Maybe it would be better to yeah. go back to – Narrow the focus. Yeah, to yep. a bit like the Tamworth Country Music Festival that started off as a, as a one-night dinner yep. to give awards out and yep. now has grown over 52 years. Yep. Then maybe the same sort of concept mm. where maybe rationalise a bit, cut it back a bit. Mm. And it's – the tricky part, I suppose, about it is sometimes I've heard people say that the, the idea of dream is a bit like the, the old joke about a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Yeah. Everyone's got to have their little bit and add in there. And so Tamworth Country Music mm. makes no apologies for saying we're about country music. If you've got some rock and roll bands, you know what I mean, wrong? No, they're not really welcome here. Mm. Mm. If you've got people who want to do instrumental music, no, probably not. But if it's about country music, Yes, yeah. please come here. Same with the Elvis Festival in Parks. If you want to go to the Elvis Festival dressed up as Michael Jackson, sure, knock yourself out, but you're probably <laughs> going to be alone. That's right. People are focused on Elvis, yes, yes. and again, they make no apologies for that. Mm. One of the issues that I've heard with Dream before is because it was entertainment, arts, and music, mm. it is a bit of everything. It's a bit of culture. It's a bit of everything. But mm. when you try and nail if someone says to you, what's Dream, give me what is Dream in one yeah. sentence, yeah. then people talk about the Lantern Parade, but it didn't really start off as a Lantern Parade. Mm. But what is dream when you say, oh, it's this great festival of to different events, what of those events mm. is something that will draw people to the community? Well, it picks up on that point you raised earlier about when I asked you the question, what did you learn from going to Tamworth and going down to Bathurst and even, say, the Elvis thing? Your word was basically around, you've got to find your niche. Mm. You've got to find something that's very specific in regards to it. Maybe that's something as part of the committee's discussion in regards to the nature of Dream. It is it a niche enough presentation to, to people really can establish and know exactly what this is? One of the big things, I think, for council is when you have an event, take the touch footy. And remember, the amount that we handed over in cash to for the touch footy was mm. basically zero. Yes, mm. it did cost them some money and, and things we organised, but... Very little money was injected from our bottom line, from council's bottom line, to create an event that drew 9,000 people. Now, that was 9,000 people for three nights. Mm. We estimate, a conservative estimate, was about $4 million into our economy. Now, we know people travelled from various places because mm. they lived in various places because yes. that was the whole concept That's of right. the competition. Yeah, yeah. So we know they travelled. We know those 9,000 largely came from across the area. Obviously, there were some Dubbo teams in there as well, but they came from yep. outside Dubbo. And that's the really important thing there. I've heard numbers, say 20,000, for example, mm. that have attended Dream in the past. I would guarantee that those 20,000 were not 
people that travelled to Dubbo. Mm. A lot of those were Dubbo people. And, mm. and again, it's a nice event. And, and, and is that what you want? Do you want an event that's a lovely community event where lots of people get out of their lounge rooms and stop watching mm. their streaming services and come down and participate at Victoria Park and down the streets as we have a lantern parade? If that's what you want from Dream, that's fine. Just make it obvious that that's it. But is the other part of that is you've got to have the people to run it. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the other part, isn't it? You but, know, like but if you've got a committee that, let's say, a committee gets that back up and running, I think refining what you want out of it. So if it's just a, a good community event for Dubbo locals, great. Make sure that's what you do. If mm. it is trying to attract people from outside, and I don't know that there would be a large number of people who would say, take the Lantern Parade, who would say, I'm here in Sydney and I've heard they've got a Lantern Parade in Dubbo. I'm going to travel to Dubbo mm. to look at the Lantern Parade. They mm. would travel to Bathurst to watch the races. Mm. They would travel to Tamworth to participate in Tamworth Country Music. They'd travel to Dubbo to see the zoo. Mm. But I don't know that the Lantern Parade was a strong enough carrot or mm. a strong enough incentive for people yep. to travel yep. from Sydney to come out there and spend their money here. And that's a large part of it as well. Mm. We want to, if we're spending money on something, we want to make sure that we're getting money injected yeah. into the economy yeah. for that. So that's yeah. that's the challenge. That's all ahead of us. But again, I do encourage people, contact your favourite councillor, talk to them about your thoughts. We are always trying to, we don't want to put rate rises up above CPI or above rate pegging. We're always trying to keep that down. So we're trying to look at every dollar we spend, but also we're trying to create great things for the community mm. and, and be part of that. And we want to refine what it might be. So it's almost at a crossroads for Dream, I would say, yeah. now. Where does council go with Dream? That decision is ahead of councillors. I look forward to the discussions uh, post the committee meeting. Now, during the week, uh, Matt, you flew down to Canberra. Um, haven't been down there for a while. Actually, we've sort of been a few weeks. We've had a chat about uh, what's been happening in Canberra. So you managed to get down. And Now, this time around, you've gone down there with the uh, Regional Capital Australia Board. Um, now, you're the secretary of this group, so... How often do they meet? Do they meet once uh, every couple of months or? Yeah, about once every three months the, the board will meet just to see what we've got in common because we've got a bigger platform when we've got a number of regional capitals. Now, we mm. identify about 50 regional capitals across the nation. Yep. Not all of those 50s are members of our organisation, but we more or less represent the whole idea that you've got a bunch of regional capitals that together make up the same population basically as, say, a Sydney or a Melbourne. Yeah, right. So we want to make sure that we're getting our fare of money and also being heard at the same level as a Sydney or a Melbourne might be. I'd imagine then based on that, because you're meeting as a group, you probably get more pulling power in regards to trying to get some ministers to come and sit down and talk to you rather than probably just individually trying to bang on someone's door. Definitely right, but also they're keen to hear from you because you're representing a number of councils. So if I go along as the Mayor of Dubbo Regional Council and say I want to talk to some ministers, they will listen to me and sometimes it might be harder to get in because there's 537 mayors across the mm. nation. Mm. So they don't really have the time to take meetings from every individual one of those. Yep. So they might hear from me individually and hear from me about the needs of Dubbo Regional Council. But when we go along representing all of our members of Regional Capitals Australia, then suddenly they say, well, this is good. We're hearing a bit more of a cross-section. And, and for example, at this meeting, not all of our members attend every meeting, but mm. we had people from Western Australia, we had people from Victoria, we had people from New South Wales, and sitting down with some of these ministers, people from Tasmania were there as well, sitting mm. down with some of these ministers, we can actually have this discussion and they're getting a broader cross-section mm. and hearing from people about things we've got in common. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of similar interests there. 
and absolutely, needs. Absolutely right. And know, that's the thing. We are, I think, representing a, a large chunk of the population, so it's worthwhile mm. for them to listen to what we've got to say and certainly there are things we've got in common, things that we've got to say that they want to listen to. So we believe we can help them as well. Yep. So it's not just about trying to get everything we want. It's mm. can we be of assistance to you? Mm. Can we work out ways that we can add to your knowledge to try and deliver mm. better outcomes for all of us? We Australia? can be the voice for the rural and for the uh, for those country situations and things yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. um, let's look at the first one. Uh, so you caught up there with Assistant Minister Chisholm. Now she's the, is it a she? Hey, Anthony Chisholm. Anthony Chisholm, is yeah. it? Okay, Anthony Chisholm. Now he's the minister, the Assistant Minister for Education, the Assistant Minister for Regional Development, Deputy Manager of the Government Business in the Senate, and the Senator for Queensland. So one of these folks seems to have plenty of titles. Um, How did you go that discussion? Was there anything there that is of significance for here back in Dubbo? It was really about regional development, I think, for that one. The main focus there, we didn't really focus on the education part of his portfolio, but it was Mm. really about regional development. And it came down to a discussion, as some of these did during the day, around housing Mm. and around just making sure that he had a good understanding of the challenge that we have. We've got people that want to come to regional areas, so he understands that. He's heard that before. And we've got people that don't need a lot of encouragement to come to regional areas, but they do need somewhere to live when they come to those regional areas. Mm. So what things can the federal government do around delivering on the regional development part of it in terms of, okay, we've got people that want to come, how can you help out with housing? Now, they talked about 1.2 million houses that the government... this figure being bandied around a bit. Yeah, that's right. It's a lot of houses. So again, what we pitch from that perspective is... We believe we've got land, and and I certainly talked about Dubbo specifically Mm. in that scenario, but other members around the the table said similar things, that they've got land in their councils. Sometimes they might need some help with the infrastructure because sometimes it's not viable for a developer to develop that with all the costs associated with that, and then it becomes too expensive with interest rates at the moment for someone to actually be able to Mm. afford to buy a house there. Mm. The developer's got to make some money along the way, the builder's got to make some money along the way, and otherwise they're not going to do it, and Mm. then someone needs to be able to afford to buy that house. So that's the sort of thing they're looking at, how can they accelerate some of that and what money might they need to put in. But he he probably had a fair understanding of some of those challenges, but he did actually note or did say that he really appreciated hearing some of the stories from the ground and really, more or less in his mind, confirming the direction they're going and trying to accelerate some of this housing. But the problem is, accelerate, we need the housing today. When you start to talk about different funding streams and a new funding stream that's opening up soon, they said the guidelines will be out sometime in March and then those funding streams will be open until maybe end of June and then decisions will be made maybe end of the year and then you go, well, that's next mm, year mm. before we can even start using any yep. of that money. If we're successful in that, we need solutions now. So again, good to make him aware of those problems and the pressing needs for some of those solutions. Yeah. Speaking of infrastructure, you met with the Minister uh, Catherine King here. Uh, she's the Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government. Uh, obviously, from the point of view of where, where we sit out here, this is a pretty important one. Um, now, you talk there about infrastructure, it is, and you talk there about, say, with, with the housing with 1.2 million homes they're, they're trying to sort of, uh, you know, to get, that's what we need to, to really get going as soon as we possibly can. Um was there any commitment here that, uh, that Catherine King has made in regards to, to assist regional development here? Well, a couple of things with Catherine. Catherine's a, a good friend of ours. She meets with us regularly because obviously her portfolio, uh, some of the things that are very important mm. to us, including local government. So that's a really important portfolio there. And Catherine did also talk about the 1.2 
million homes. Also talked about new funding streams available with those guidelines I mentioned a moment ago. But one of the other ones that I thought it was worth mentioning here with Catherine's portfolio was the airports. And I certainly talked to her at length about the reform. Now, we try and avoid things that are specific to just one mm. local government area that doesn't apply to many of our other capitals that we're talking about because it seems like we're being a bit selfish saying we're here meaning you as regional capital australia now i've got a really big problem for my individual council can Mm. you solve that problem for me so we try and avoid that a little bit but there were two things that were interesting with airports i did ask for leave if you like from the rest of the group to say i just need to talk about a new south wales issue for a moment Mm. and they're okay with that because it's not just dubbo but it's new south wales and that's the reform she's doing for Sydney Airport. And yep. we talked about that last week that's with right. slots. Yeah. So I did talk to her at length about that and said, thank you for doing that. That's absolutely needed. And just talked about some of the issues we've had in the past around uh, airline like Virgin, for example, who wanted to fly out of Dubbo, wanted to yep. fly to Brisbane, wanted to fly to Melbourne, but needed to fly to Dubbo as part, uh, sorry, to Sydney as part of that mm. and couldn't do it because of the slots and the issue around not enough slots. Mm. So Catherine, I think it was good for her to hear just how important that was for us and, of course, Western Sydney Airport. So that was all very important to discuss around that. There was one instance... So when's that reform meant to come through? No idea. No idea about the time frame. I know that started and I know there's some changes they're making almost immediately as part of that, but also looking at the big picture around that. So I don't know about time frames around all of that. I don't think it's going to be overnight, but at least they're aware of the problem and looking at the problem. That's the crucial part. Wagga did have an interesting issue that they wanted to take up, which was very much about one council, but they did say that they highlight it very briefly at the meeting and then they'd have discussions mm-hmm. at a later point. And again, that sometimes you can have those discussions. But Wagga's got a bit of a different scenario. We own our airport. We were given the airport from the federal government. I'm not sure if it's a good gift or a bad mm-hmm. gift because mm-hmm. airports can be expensive to run. Yep. But we're talking back around, I'm guessing here, but 1970 or 1972. Okay. It seemed yeah. to be the time frame that that was given to us. So we own all the land around there. We bought some extra land over the years. We own everything there and so we lease for example we've talked about it before the rural fire service and the training center they've got there the aviation center of excellence some of those areas we lease that to those on a long-term lease but we own the land yep and wagga's a bit different because wagga is the site of a raft base which sounds fantastic yeah right they've got some parts of the airport they use for that but the airport that is used by wagga council is leased to Wagga Council from the federal government. Right. And that's only a 30-year lease. Now, that lease is about to expire. They're very worried about what will happen with the next lease if it goes out to open Mm. market. And then someone, for example, there's a company that has the 99-year lease down at Sydney Airport. That same company might decide, well, a regional airport's up for grabs. I might put in a bid for that. Mm. There might be other companies who might want to put in a bid. And then their fear is that they'll get someone, some external company who's Bottom line is what is important to them, not basically keeping access. And so they'll take that, they'll get the 99-year lease for that, then to get a return on their money, they'll start to push up the landing fees. sort of passing on to the council, yeah, okay. Well, it'll it'll pass on to users, to people flying, not to council. So they're very keen to say, well, we've had it for 30 years, we think you should leave it in council's Mm. hands rather than having external. Now, that's a... I'm not going to enter that argument. That's Wagga's argument to have. But mm. again, that highlights the opportunity when there is something very specific to one individual area, the areas that you might need. Now, again, we talked to Catherine about some of the things that she's probably aware of around housing, around infrastructure that's needed. So again, it's good to talk to Catherine. And it's good when 
Catherine walks in the room, we've met with enough times now, that she starts to say, hello, Matthew, hello, Murray, starts to know the individuals around the, the room. Absolutely. Again, that's... Shows the, the benefit of the relationships too. Building those relationships. And again, I know that she would reach out to RCA if there were things that were coming up that she wasn't sure about and wanted to get a bit of a an opinion from the ground, she wouldn't mm. probably go and ring 537 councils, but she would mm. ring some different groups and I guarantee that RCA would be one of those groups that, mm. that she'd consider in that. Mm. I'm going to bring two in here together. You also met with uh, Assistant Minister Carol Brown. Now, she's the Assistant Minister for Infrastructure and Transport. She's also a senator there for Tasmania. And also, at the same time, you met with Minister uh, Chris McBain, who's the Minister for Regional Development, Local Government and Territories. Now, so both of these uh, um, ministers came in to to have a chat to you um, and as a group. So what did they have to offer? We were going to talk to them separately, but as it turns out, sometimes when there's a vote required or there's some division, the, the bells go off and someone's got to run. So we were meant to meet with Carol first of all and then Christy, but ended up Carol's delayed slightly because of that. Mm. Not her fault. That's part of her job. And so we end up meeting with both of them together, which was fine. Christy's another one that we've met with regularly, again, because she's assisting Catherine King as uh, in the local government portfolio. And again, Christy's another one that walks in. G'day, Matthew, how are you going? In fact, I've talked about Christy before. I was incredibly impressed during our flooding back in 2022 that I got a phone call, ran a mobile mm-hmm. number, picked up the phone. Hi, how are you going? Oh, hi, it's Christy McBain here. And, and I paused and I went, Christy McBain, the only Christy McBain I know is Minister Christy McBain. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> is, it, is it really? I mean, I don't want to be rude yeah, Christy, yeah. but uh, I don't expect... The well, it shows a care factor, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's right. So once I was convinced that it was Christy, yeah, I, yeah. I said, well, I'll tell you what, Christy, whatever else happens on the conversation, I'm very impressed that you mm. picked up the phone and, and just rung me to see how we're going with our flooding scenario. Absolutely. She's been good with a, a range of other things. I, I actually like Christy. I mean, all these ministers I, I met with, I, I like them all, but Christy's got experience as a, as a mayor. So she kind of gets the local government mm. angle as well. So mm. I think she brings that knowledge to the table. And absolutely, you feel like she's fighting on behalf of the councils because she's been there in that same scenario. So that's that's good. One of the things I thought was interesting with Christy is the first thing she said to me was, oh, Matthew, I saw you on the 7.30 report the other day talking about renewables. I like what you had to say, blah, blah. But again, the fact that you've got a good enough relationship with them that they notice when they see some report that might feature something that comes across their desk as mm. such mm. and wants to have a quick conversation around that. One of the things that's interesting, Carol Brown... Again, talk about the infrastructure side. She talked about housing as well. And we talked about our 3D printed house in in Dubbo. And she said, oh, oh, sorry, our toilets, but leaning towards our housing. So tell me about that. I've heard a little bit about that. Give me some more information. So talked about that. And again, it's the group conversation because this is a potential solution for many of the councils around the table. But as we were leaving, she just came over to me and said, look, can I grab your business card, Matthew? I want to come out to Dubbo. I want to look at that toilet and talk more about 3D housing. Okay. Because she's working on how can we solve this problem? She knows there's yep. a problem with housing. How can we solve this problem? That's interesting, isn't it, though, that the fact that, uh, that the federal government's picking up on this and seeing this as a potential solution option as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, Christy, again, was good as always. One of the things that I love the concept of Christy, I don't know that I'll ever get it through, but Christy is a fan of this idea that I've talked about before of not having to go and sing for our supper for every individual project that we want to do. Mm. There is a scheme called FAGS, Federal mm-hmm. Assistance Grant Scheme. I think mm-hmm. the FAG stands right, for, the, right. the acronym is. Is it still politically correct, that term? I'm not going to enter that discussion at all. <laughs> but that's been around for as long as I've been on council. And effectively, that's money that is given out on a per capita 
basis. I think it's per capita. Right. But basically, every council knows how much money they need to get under their federal assistance grant scheme money. Yep. And so we get that each year, and we can use that for what we need to use it for in council. Now, mm. Christy says, because again, she's had experience at council, it's a pretty major, not drama, but a job to go and fill in all these grant applications. Mm. It costs money to do that. We hope we get the money. Oh, no, we didn't get it. We wasted all that money filling the grant application. She's a fan of the idea of saying on some formula, whatever that formula might be, a bit the same as FAGS is giving yep. out on a formula, on some formula, we just say here at WA Regional Council is your allocation from the federal government. Don't come and apply to us for grants. You've got your money and use that in whatever so way you want. So based upon previous grants that you've been given, so to speak, we've worked a bit of a formula, plus based maybe on your... Uh, you know, how many people live here and the size of the uh, the area and all that sort of stuff. They work a bit of formula. They give you a set figure every year rather than having to apply for the grants all the time. That's the way that I see, would I like love that. to see it. Yeah, it would but, be fantastic. Because well, that'd be good because it also sets up then, at least you know what your forward income is going to be. Oh, absolutely. It is hard budgeting with council mm. when you're making estimations around what grants you might get from both the state and federal government. So that would be fantastic. I've When I've talked about the concept before and I've talked about that idea mm. for years, I've often said... I understand one of the reasons why you wouldn't do it because when you give a grant for a specific project, then the relevant minister gets to come along and be there at the official opening and cutting the ribbon and making a speech about that. So it's good exposure for the various ministers that are responsible for those grants. But I've always said, if you give us a, an allocation of funds, we will use it on certain projects mm. and we'll find how many projects do you want throughout the year to come and cut a ribbon on. If you want two mm. or three or four, mm. we'll we find them. still. That's you just right. give me the money and we'll allow, do the, allow us to do our trick and sort of build what we need to build and then you can come along and cut the ribbon. Okay. And, and we will use that money on different projects that yeah. absolutely they could cut the ribbon on. So Christy's a fan of that. I don't know if she's got much support from her colleagues, right, <laughs> but right. Christy is certainly a fan. And that also takes away the the spreadsheet, the coloured spreadsheet that we saw that was talked about so much mm. after the, the last government. It means that essentially here's the formula. Yeah. The formula doesn't say, are you represented by a Labor member or a mm. Liberal or a National Party member or an independent? It's just there's the formula based on certain criteria. See, the other thing I like about that, it's all very above board. And there's, there's no opportunity for any sort of rorting assistance to take place when you've got an actual formula set in place you have to follow. And that's the allocated funding sort of thing. Can you answer this question for me? She's the minister. Can she just simply go through and say, well, here we go, this is what I'm going to implement now as, as the new system? Or does she have to go through a certain process of voting, um, like any sort of, well, it wouldn't be a law, but it'd be a regulation change. So what would be the process there? I, I don't know enough about the federal government to answer that with great authority, but I would say that it would be political suicide for her just to do it as a, okay, this is what I'm going to do from now on, mm. keeping in mind that this goes across a number of departments. So it's not just a portfolio that she's responsible mm. for, it's all of these portfolios. So she wouldn't have enough power in her maybe so it has her to be portfolio. Agreed to maybe by the party first, that they all agree to it as being this is part of our. I process you want to adopt? The only way I think you'd do it, and then you'd probably go through Parliament to make it a bit more solid. Mm. But again, she might say, all the grants in my portfolio, I'm not going to give out any grants anymore, we're just going to allocate that. But that would only be a small part of all the money because of all the different departments and mm. all the different grant applications okay. or processes. So I think the first thing you try and do, speaking without a lot of knowledge here, but the first thing you try and do right, is you'd get the party on side to say, okay, everyone, we agree to this. That'd be a tough job. And then if you've got the party on side, obviously, it'd be a bit easy to get it through mm. Parliament if you needed to do that. But the party could say, well, mm. we've got this process of allocating money. Mm. 
the biggest discussion slash argument that you would have during that would be deciding the criteria mm. because there would be areas. So yes, take, absolutely. for example, yep. our area here that Mark Cook represents, Parks, is a huge area. I think Mark often talks about maybe a third of the state. A huge area, but the population, obviously they have a, a population where they try and keep the population about the same. Take Sydney councils, mm. then the old joke used to be, I think, that Mark Coulton would take longer to fly around the boundary of his electorate than it would for when Malcolm Turnbull was in, in office for him to walk around the boundary of his. <laughs> now, again, in yep. Sydney and Melbourne, you've got a much greater population density. So, again, much smaller areas. So mm. would you allocate the money just on population? Well, you'd argue that maybe a third of the state needs more money spent on it than a very well, small area. For that sort of living out here, I think it should be about area, not about population. That and then, again, you <laughs> argue that, and then people who live in those highly populated areas or highly of densely populated would, would say, right. well, yeah, that yeah. doesn't work. So yeah. I think that's where you'd get a lot of the discussion yep. around the actual formula. Okay. But if you got that, if you could get agreement on that, I think that would be a fantastic yeah. system. Yeah. I'm not holding my breath for it, though. No, no, that's exactly right. Now, separate to the uh, the RCA meeting, uh, you also met with a representative from Chris Bowen's department. Um, so you couldn't catch up with Chris at all? He was too busy? or No, and I did see Chris at the Ungler opening when we did the or yep. sod turning at Ungler where we had Andrew Forrest and uh, and Chris Bowen was there. Mm. And I did mention to him that we were down in Canberra and wanted to catch up with his office and that was fine, but couldn't see us. Now, that's okay. Sometimes you try and line up a meeting with the minister and you can't get to see them. And maybe that's part of the argument for this mm. wasn't an RCA meeting, it was individual council meetings, yes, so maybe that's we didn't right. have as much clout there. But also, I understand they've only got so many hours in a day. But sometimes it's absolutely worthwhile catching up with advisors because mm. often those advisors have got the ear of the minister and if you can convince mm. an advisor of something, then the ear of the minister is important. Mm. So we really want to focus for this particular meeting around a couple of parts of the res of our renewable energy zone. One was the Golden Highway. And, and the reason we want to talk about this with the federal government was we said, well, this isn't in our patch as such. The requirements for the Golden Highway in terms of what we need is a very small part of our LGA. The real issue with the Golden Highway is that a large part of the Golden Highway is difficult to overtake on. There's still yeah. the, the roads are getting better all the time, but there's still large parts of that that are difficult to overtake. And when you start to get mm. large components coming down, I'm talking about Turbine, yep. talking about. Well, they're going to come through for the Newcastle port, aren't they? Correct, that's right. So okay. you're going to come through Newcastle. Now, you've got some issues with bridges there. Yep. There's the discussion around. And there's some pretty tight turns. Tight turns and bridges. So you've got mm -hmm. one bridge, for example, where they're talking about the way they'll have to get some of these large devices underneath some of the overhead yep. bridge there yep. will be to let the tyres down on the truck to make it a bit lower to then go across that bridge slowly then pump the tyres back yeah, up right. the other side to keep right. going. Now, we know what happened in Wellington when yeah. you had yeah, a, a yeah. device or a I truck know the bridge you're talking too high. About too. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's an issue. But then another part of the issue that we certainly think is that there are large parts of this that are tight and windy and mm. some parts not a lot of overtaking space. You then get a long vehicle, a long truck on that and a number of them and then you're a car behind there that truck's not going to be going at 100 kilometres an hour. You're stuck behind that, no opportunity to overtake. Mm. Sometimes people take silly risks. Absolutely. That's yeah. when accidents so, happen. Exactly yeah. right. So we want more overtaking. We think that's crucial, more overtaking lanes mm. along there so that you get those large trucks off to the side and you can overtake. Improve that, improve some of the bridges. So there's a whole range of things that need to be done there. What we were pitching was, yes, we know that Transport for New South Wales and the state government is part of the res is looking at all of this, but we think... 
they're going to need help from the federal government. We don't think there's enough money in the bucket mm. for them to do the work they need to do, and we think it's important for the, the federal government. Highway federal highway? Is that a federal no, highway? A state. A state. state is highway, it? Okay, yeah. right. So ultimately, the state government's responsible, and they yeah. know the state government's responsible for the res per se. Mm. But we also think because the federal government's got targets they mm. want everyone to meet, we think there's a piece for them to play on that. So mm. we got a good hearing there from the federal government, from the advisor we met with. So that was a good start. And I take the opportunity every time I get the opportunity to talk about the lack of consistency in the amount that we get from a council I was going to say that you get a chance to raise again this whole idea that we've talked about at length on these podcasts, getting federal governments to jump in here, the federal government here to jump in here and to set some sort of benchmark stand in regards to what companies need to be paying to the rural communities. So that was absolutely part of the discussion. We need more money is mm. the bottom line from that. Now, what I did learn was, in again, you learn lots of things as you go in the discussion. I had the discussion and I talked about the fact that, and I've talked about it before when I was on a, a video conference call with Andrew Dyer, mm. who was appointed by the federal government to, to look at some of the, the renewable issues. Uh, in the video conference call there, I found it interesting because on that same video call that I was on, there was a mayor from a Queensland area. And he was talking about the fact that these solar one solar farms are great because they get some money out of those, but the wind farms are terrible. They get no money. And I it's said, the other way around out here. Right? That's right. I'm yeah, confused yeah. because we actually have reasonable success with wind farms, but with solar farms, we get nothing out mm. of them. What I didn't know on that video conference, but what I learned when I met with this particular advisor was that a lot of the solar farm projects are actually consented by the consent authority is the local council. So they've got the power to say yes or no. Therefore, they've got the power to say we need certain amounts of income for our local council for us to be happy to go through and approve that project. Whereas here, all of these projects we're talking about are effectively going through a state significant development process, the New South Wales Department of Planning. So as we talked about, we can say, please, can we have some money? Can mm. we have as much money as we possibly can? That's my objective, to squeeze as much money as we can yeah. for our community. Yeah. But we can't say, no, we're not the consent authority, Matt, so we don't have much power. Matt, do you have any idea as to the reason why, you know, state and federal here are sitting on their hands on this? Like, why hasn't there been some sort of directive given in regards to, to assisting rural communities out here like us in trying to say, well, this is a battle which is literally up to each individual council to have to take up. Why aren't federal and why aren't state governments getting on board this? I don't know the real answer. I suspect part of it is historical where they didn't need to in the past because there just weren't the number of projects. But obviously this is accelerating and it's happening pretty quickly And I sometimes talk about it with technology. I find that sometimes technology advances faster than legislation can keep up. And it might be a bit the same with this, that things are happening so quickly that there just hasn't been the time for the state and or federal governments to put the framework in place that we desperately need. And maybe they will in the future. I keep talking about it as much as I can mm. to both state and federal. But I actually think this is an area where the federal government could play a role because they could just say, to all the state governments across the land, okay, here is what we expect in your individual planning, because obviously the planning is done at the state level. Here is what we see as the acceptable standard across the nation. And I'd like to say more than 1.5%. Mm. We've squeezed up to 1.5%. Yep. And we were told several times that we were dreaming and we wouldn't have much success and we wouldn't get there. We've been able to do it a few times so far, maybe not every time. Mm. But one and a half cents still to me is not enough. I would rather see more money yep. for our communities. That's, yep. that's my number one objective. But unless it's legislated, 
it's going to be so difficult to punch any higher than that. Absolutely right. Whereas the federal government could say to the states, we have an expectation that the local councils in those areas had a voluntary planning agreement, no yep. longer voluntary, yep. a planning agreement. A compulsory. They had 3%, yeah, a compulsory yeah. planning agreement. So all of the proponents out there, when you're doing your numbers, yeah. build that in to the overall cost. And yes, yeah. it would make electricity ever so marginally dearer for everyone across the nation, yeah. but that would be a very small amount in the whole scheme of things. Mm. I just don't see that planning agreements add significantly to the electricity bill of every individual. Is it because of the fact maybe too that we're talking what about, is there five reses are there? Is that right? Five reses? In the state, in but that's only in New South Wales. There yep. are five reses being declared in New South Wales. So, ha- so in New South Wales there's five reses here. Is, you know, across Australia there'd be more obviously. Is that part of the problem is the fact that there's just not enough pushing power via such a small little group in the sense that the other council groups, well, they couldn't really care less, to be honest, I'd imagine, because they're not going to get any money from it. Is that part of the problem? Is the reason why that they don't see it as a high enough priority? Because it's, oh, well, it's only five little groups here in New South Wales. Yeah, There's X number of groups across the board, a lot more votes out here in these other areas. Why should I be putting my effort into this? It could be that, because if you think about this res, there's three councils. I can't tell you off the top of my head how many councils are in each of those reses, but let's yep. say in the five residents in New South Wales, let's say there were three councils in each one, that's 15 councils. Yep. There's 128 councils in yeah. the state, so maybe... Just over 10%, that's it, it. that's yeah, right. It, it may be that it's not quite enough to gain enough momentum. Now, I'm trying all by my own some to yeah, create enough yeah. momentum with every that's discussion right. I have, so we'll keep doing that. But again, that to me, this is a crucial component. Mm. I see renewables in area as a huge opportunity and it's up to us to make sure we get as much as we can for our community out of this process. The proponents have done their numbers. They're going to make money out of it yep. along the way. Yep. The state government has got their targets. The federal government's got their targets. We want to make sure that we're rewarded as a community mm. for the contribution that we are making Absolutely. to this whole 100%, process. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Uh, and I also, with that advisor, got a chance to bring up my React Centre and again oh, talk, good. talking about that and just again the opportunity for the federal government to contribute in some way, shape or form to that mm. because again I see that as that lasting legacy to keep money ticking into our economy, yep. in particular the Wellington economy for decades to come. Oh, that's so important. Now I know a lot of people will be very interested in this little discussion and uh, I for one um, am very interested sort of want to know some how this is going to sort of roll, because timelines for the removal of unattended and burnt-out vehicles. Now, unfortunately, there has been a situation over the last, well, a couple of years, I suppose, but we've seen them around the place, and the, I'd suggest probably ever since uh, cars were first invented, there's been burnt-out vehicles around the place, but we certainly do see them around the place from time to time. And I know that I'm one of them as well, gets very frustrated when you see a, a vehicle sitting in a fairly prominent position around town, and you go... When is someone going to remove that car? It's, it is an eyesore. People are walking past here. There's tourists coming past here. Uh, this is not a good look to have, a, you know, a burnt-out car sitting in a very prompt position or any position for that matter. What's the timeline and how does it all work in regards to the removal of these burnt-out cars and does council play a role in this? We can play a role, yes, and it is complicated. So I'll go through a little mm. bit here and we'll go through and see if we can... Because I imagine it would be a bit complicated with this. Yeah, it is. There's a whole range of things. So if anyone wants to look up the legislation, because obviously council has to work with anything we do under certain legislation. So if anyone wants to look it up, what we or what we use to deal with abandoned or burnout cars is the Public Spaces Unattended Property Act of 2021. 
Right. Okay. Now, in that act, a vehicle is classified as a class three item. So if you're bored this afternoon and you want to sit down and read something, then read the Public Spaces Unattended Property Act 2021 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and look for class three act. Now, there's also about timelines in terms of when it can be classified as unattended and then timelines for us to give notice to someone before we do something. Okay. And that's often a frustration that we have. We talked about it with people that have got overground blocks mm. and giving them notice. We've got to give certain notice. Now, if you then look at it, we must allow a period of seven days delivery for all posted notices as per the Interpretation Act 987. So that's a part of the thing we've got. So if we just say, we email someone, no, we've got to allow seven days. So we might email and post them something, but we've got to assume from that point in time, we've got to allow seven days for them to receive that notification, even right. though if we email them, we're pretty confident they're going to get it straight mm, away. Mm. That's part of the Interpretation okay. Act. Maybe, again, common practice getting ahead yep. of legislation. Mm. Now, so so that's part of it. Now, unattended vehicles, the... <laughs> What's an unattended vehicle? So the authorised officer for council must reasonably believe the property in question is unattended. So if you see a car parked in the same spot for a couple of days, can that start the timeline? Well, is it unattended or has someone just left just it parked park the there? Car there. Yeah. I mean, I might park my car for a week at the airport sometimes mm, mm. and I go somewhere. Is that an unattended vehicle? So mm. the the officer in question must reasonably believe the, the property in question is unattended and that maybe it's causing a public risk, which again is another part of the Act. So there's a, a few things there and we mm. talk about timelines. There's a bunch of tables out of that Act, which I'll, I'll try and summarise or quote from as, as best I can. And and sorry, let me go back a couple of steps before I talk about those. You've got things like burnout vehicles, which yeah. sometimes to complicate issues, they might be being dealt with by the police. They might be looking at that as a part of an investigation. So we can't just come in and remove that vehicle because mm. the police are dealing with it. There are other times where it might be an insurance claim. The insurance company, when we contact the owner, the insurance company, where we're directed to the insurance company, they might say, well, no, the insurance company is dealing with that and they're organising someone to come along and remove that vehicle because it's all covered by insurance, for example. So there are certain issues there. But let me just get to some of these. If we see, and again, this is from this 2021 Act, Mm. if we see a registered vehicle unattended, it's got to be unattended for 28 days or more before we can take any action. Right. So for if, if you're looking at, uh, let's say, I'm a resident, and there's been a car parked outside my place and no one's gone to it for 28 days, I can assume at that point in time that it is now up to be removed. Not quite. Okay, right. <laughs> That'd be too easy. Okay. 28 days is the unattended period. Right. Then we've got a notice time frame of 15 days. So do I then notify council about the fact, I just want to try to bring it back here for the listeners in regards to a personal situation maybe. Car sitting out the front there of my place, sitting there for 28 days. I have to wait 28 days for a contact council. It's If it's a registered vehicle, it's probably not going to be defined as unattended for 28 days. So if someone parks a car on the street and let's say they do go overseas for a couple of weeks, they're, yep. they're parked on the street in front of their place, they go overseas for a couple of weeks. If they went overseas for four weeks, yep. Four weeks later, you could say, sorry, that's a registered vehicle that's unattended. But the officer that comes along there, looking at it, as in our officer from council, so might say, would, well... Would, would I contact council to get the officer to come out and have a look at it? And say, yes, please, there's a vehicle that's unattended. Can you please come and look at it? Now, if that officer comes along and looks at that and finds out that it's registered to a person that lives 
in the house which parked in front of, yep. they could probably say just it, been parked there. It's not reasonable to think this is unattended. Yeah. If it's someone from Queensland that's parked it in front of that place and it's sat there for 28 days and hasn't been moved and the spider webs off the wheels, yeah. you'd say, well, yeah, maybe this is an unattended so vehicle. So you could safely then assume then that after that 28 days, I've contacted council, an officer comes out, has a look at it. They would do their own little investigation on the car. Mm. They'd, find look at, out they'd look at that to see whether to they see think it's unattended. unattended. Maybe make a few phone calls possibly. I don't know. Uh, maybe look at the registrations, check out where they're all from. Let's say it comes back and says... All right, would the officers safely assume this is now an unattended car? What happens next? So then you've got this notice time frame. So 15 days notice time frame. Is that council sends out a notice then to the owner? You've got to give 15 days. Now, I'm not sure. This is the one part that's a bit more confusing as yep. well. You've got the Interpretation Act that says seven days when you post something, you've got to allow seven days. If our staff post something, so it gets to day 29 and they post something out there, then the 15 days, I assume, covers the seven days. Right. So, in other Inclusive, words, so to speak. Because the 15 days is greater than seven, yep. but we've got to get 15 days. So we send something out and we say, okay, we think this is unattended. Mm-hmm. 15 days later, mm. we could then say, oh, okay, you can now, as in council, we can now remove that vehicle from there. Okay. We can get a towing company to come along and tow that vehicle away, and then we can put it in a, a you know, impound that if yep. you like. Let the owner know. And by the way, the cost you owe us the money yeah, yeah, yeah. for that. Now, yep. if it's truly an unattended vehicle, are we ever going to get that money? Probably not. Mm. And I don't know if we have the power after a certain number of days of being an impound to actually sell that vehicle yeah, on behalf of that to okay, recover our right. money. Yep. Don't know that part of it. Now, that's for a registered vehicle. Yep. Unregistered. What happens with well, that? Well, no, there's another one in between. Oh, there is. Yep. Is there? Right. Okay. There's registered but inoperable. So let's take a simple example. All right. You see a car on the side of the road. Broken down somewhere. Yeah, but you probably don't know it's broken down, but if it's missing a wheel. Hmm. So you see a car on the side of the road, it's got a wheel missing. You think, okay, I'm pretty certain that's inoperable. Hmm. I know at Bathurst, during the the Bathurst 500 on the Saturday, there was a a vehicle that had a wheel come off and it kept driving to the pits. But I think in general, most people would (laughs) say- Pretty clever driving. It was. Most people would say, three wheels on a car- is probably inoperable. inoperable. That's yeah. right. Assuming it's not a tuk-tuk. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> the decision. The unattended period for that one yep. is 15 days. Okay. Right. Yep. Now, you, you, again, you think, oh, look, I've got a car there. It's been there for a couple of days. Three yeah. wheels on it. That's just been left there. But let's take another example. Someone's driving along. They've hit a pothole yep. and they've got a dent in their rim. They can't just – or let's say they've damaged the car, the suspension. They can't just put the spare – tire on for example Mm. spare wheel so they have to take that away to get fixed so their friend comes along picks them up they take it away they're getting the rim fixed it might be reasonable that it sits Mm. there for a week or more even though someone looks at three wheels in their car that's obviously unattended Mm. presumably that's why 15 days is the time limit given there Mm. for it to be unattended then the notice time frame on this one is three days but that's where i suspect that the seven days of the interpretation act Mm. would come into play so we notify someone 15 days, someone says, hey, it's been here 15 days. Mm. We say, great, we'll notify them. Seven days later, nothing more. We could then take that vehicle mm. away. How do we establish it's been 15 days? Like, like if, if you're the council officer, the, the, the fact that this, like I could be sitting out there and say, oh, this car's been here for four days. I'm sick of this damn thing. Yeah. Uh, it's been 15 days, mate. You know, when realistically it's only been three or four. Yeah, it's a very good question. So we've got to have some sort of proof. Yeah. We, you say it's been there for weeks. We go, can you tell me when it was first left there? Oh, it was weeks ago. Yeah. Well, what was the actual date? I don't know that we would have enough proof by someone saying it was definitely set, sat there two weeks ago. 
we might need photographic evidence of that yeah. or we might need to inspect it at some point and then wait 15 days. Do you call up earlier? And, and and if you're suspicious of the vehicle, and like, maybe maybe that's right. It's been here for a week. I yeah. know it hasn't been 15 days yet, but yep. can you check it out now? And then maybe that's when our officer says, "Okay, we've taken a photo of it." Then, yep. and this is what I mean it's it's complicated. It isn't is, it? isn't it? That's yeah. right. Yeah, so yeah. three days notice, but again that'll be the seven days notice. So we send that after that time frame. Then we could say, "Okay, we're now taking it away. We're now authorized to take it away." Mm. If it's an unregistered vehicle, so getting back to your point mm. there, and, and sorry. If it was registered but inoperable, presumably a burnt-out vehicle would come under that mm. one. You mm. look at a burnt-out vehicle and you go, mm, I don't think that's that drivable, fast. Yes. but it, I can still see the number plate, so it's registered yep. technically, but it's a burnt-out vehicle. It doesn't really matter though, because even if it was registered or unregistered, the time frame's the same. An unregistered vehicle, 15 days or more, and then three days for the notice time frame. But imagine too with a burnt out vehicle, police would be involved now in this, wouldn't they? That's right. And, and again, if it was burnt out and left there, that might be the trigger you know when it started mm. being left there. Yep. And the owner of that might be talking to the insurance company and organising that. So that hopefully will be done less than that time frame. But people have talked to me and they said, oh, I saw this burnt out vehicle, look terrible. Can you get rid of it? Well, not necessarily, because mm. if you just saw it there today, well, we can't do anything for that 15-day period. Again, this is all assuming you haven't had a conversation with the owner. So, for yeah. example, if the owner knows that their vehicle was burnt out, it was stolen and burnt out, and there it is on the side of the road, they can talk to their insurance company, and they can get it removed the next mm. day. Mm. So, again, this is when we haven't been able to contact the owner or yep. the owner's not coming back. So, that's, Okay, so that's a fair point. So uh, if a car's been sitting there, you know, let's say your car's stolen, and all of a sudden it turns up burnt out somewhere. I can get in contact with my insurance company after the police have probably had their investigation on it. I can get in contact with my insurance company and say, can you please remove this vehicle? Is that right? Yeah, you can You can ring a towing company. So yep. my, my wife, when she was taking dogs out to a, a kennel when we were going away at a point in time, this is um, back in 2022 when the roads were terrible, um, she had a pothole big enough that did two tyres on mm. that. So mm. she parked on the side of the road. Now, that wasn't... an a registered unattended vehicle because it wasn't there for 28 yep. days. Yep. But we just rang the towing company. It wasn't an insurance job. We just yep. rang the towing company and said, can you go and pick up that car? And I assume, you know, a day or two later, we were overseas, but a day or two later, mm. they mm. picked up the car and took it down to the tyre place we had to, to fix the tyre. So essentially, yes, you can do that yourself if it's burnout or whatever it might be. But again, burnout car, the police might want it there to do some inspections or check things first of all before they do that. Can I ask then in regards to that? Let's say you get the situation, then you've got a burnout car. And the owner's like, well, I'm not, it's burnt out. It's, I, I don't have a comprehensive insurance on it. I'm not going to pay for it to get moved on. It can sit there as far as I'm concerned. Um, what happens then? So um, if it's sitting there, so you say, I don't care about it mm. and I'm not going to worry about claiming insurance. Mm. Yeah. So that's when these timeframes would kick in. And I would, again, imagine that would be, a registered but inoperable car. So yep. that'd be the 15 days unattended and then the three days notice, which would end up being seven days notice. And then we could tow the car and send the bill to the registered owner. Yeah, right. Okay. So yep. that's the process then. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So that's fine. Now we've got more things. Oh, there's, wait, there's more. There's more. There's more. <laughs> it's like Big Kev. If we've got an item obstructing access or posing a safety risk. Mm. So for example, a car- like has a car blocks or sort of take up a-, a, a one of the, the lanes or something. Exactly right. So people are still driving around this car, but it's taking up a lane. Yeah. Then we can move that immediately. So right. no notice required. We can go and move it immediately, which makes sense. Yep. If yep. it's there and it's blocking something or it's a safety risk. So, for mm. example, it wouldn't even need to necessarily be blocking a roadway. Mm. If, for example, it was blocking a walkway 
and I'm, I'm thinking as I go here, but if it was blocking mm. a walkway and then people had to walk out onto the road to go around it, that would pose a safety risk. So mm. it's not just a straight obstruction, that would be a safety risk. Is so that, that where a council officer would make that, you know, that decision in regards to it? Or? Police might make that decision or okay. a council officer might make that decision. If the police came along and said, yep, that's blocking the roadway, that's dangerous, we need to get that moved immediately. Yeah. So okay. that's one part of it. Now, there's another one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you see a vehicle causing an amenity issue. An amenity would, issue? Yeah, so this What's would that? probably more be the look of it. A oh, burn, okay. A burnout car. Yeah, yeah. So it's not necessarily that we're doing it under the Public Spaces Unattended Property Act, although the term amenity is used in that act, but it's basically a public space that's diminishing the aesthetic value. Yep. So the amenity of the area. Now, yep. this would... This would be a tough one because it's now an opinion. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that car looks terrible. It makes the area look terrible. Mm. We need to get rid of it. Now, some people might go, oh, look, it's just something on the side of the road, whatever. Other people would say that's terrible. It looks terrible. So it comes down an opinion. But again, you've got notice time frame still, but you don't need the unattended period. Right. Because yep. something like amenity issue, you're yep. pretty sure it's not going to be operable. Yep. So, for example... So you don't have to have the 15-day waiting sort of thing. If it was one. a registered vehicle that was causing amenity issue, yep. 15 days, but it would more likely be a registered but inoperable yep. because, again, it's burnout, yep. and that would be three days, but, again, you'd have the seven days. So if That's someone says a vehicle, burnout, yep. it looks ugly, it's really damaging our reputation, yep. Yep. the best we could probably do from the time we identify that is seven days. Okay, and that would probably include the police doing their investigation, that sort of stuff in that process uh, time. You'd hope so, yeah. yeah. So, Which would make sense because I think there's been a couple of examples down there on the track O'Reilly track. There was, there was one... Yeah, there was one, one at road and Right near where the park run sort of started one day. Uh, yep. And then there was another one on the other side, Sorota Cutler Park. Yep. The Certainly the first one there, down there where the, uh, the park runners sort of meet, that got removed within the week, I think. It was pretty quick. I, was, I remember seeing it once. Yep. The other one was a little bit longer, I think. Took a little bit longer to get removed eventually, but it certainly wasn't within that. Tw- it was it was within the twenty-one day time frame, sort of thing, or twenty-two day time frame, which would have been the other fifteen and seven. Um, so I'm assuming they must have used the Amenity Act then, or or whatever they refer to it as. Well, so it might have been us that even moved it. This well, that's true thing. too. It could have been the insurance company. Too. It could that's have been right. the insurance company. The, yeah, the owner yeah. might have said, "I've got this," and part of the. The recovery of that vehicle is insurance company yep. taking it away. So the insurance company Wait might for have the police to release it and that sort of stuff and away it goes. And just looking at the act here now, I actually think when I said three days would turn into seven, I think three days would turn into ten. Because mm. I think the three days notice and the seven days for postage, the Interpretation Act, mm. I think you have to add those on. So I think the best we'd do with a burnout car would be, if no one else moved it, would be 10 days, mm. which is frustrating because mm. people see it. And it's pretty obvious it's not going to be driven again. Yep. But again, you've got – and a couple of other issues, I suppose. We've talked to owners sometimes. We've said, you've got a burnout car. Yes, I know that. And mm. Most people do know they've yeah, got a burnout car. Right. And they say, I've talked to the insurance company. Here's their details. We talked to the insurance company, mm. and they say – Oh, we've already told ABC Towing to go and I hope there's no company called ABC yeah, Towing. That's what we've told you know, Towing is, yeah. is us or Widget Towing. Yeah. We've gone and told them to go and do the towing. Mm. And then we talk to the towing company and they say, Oh yeah, Jimmy's on holidays this week, so I've only got mm. Billy on the job. Uh he'll get to it later on this week. Mm. And so again, there are various yeah. things that come up sometimes, yeah. whether it be the towing company, whether it be the police, whether it be the insurance company, mm. all of those things add in there. So out of all of that, 
let us know, absolutely, yep. Yep. but don't necessarily expect it to disappear that day. And sometimes it might. Sometimes mm. people might mm. let us know mm. and we contact the owner and they go, great, I'm on mm. my insurance company, I'll chase them up and it gets towed that day. Mm. But before we can tow it, and even then after those 10 days, for example, that I talked about under the amenity issue, mm. then we can contact a towing company and they can say, sure, I'm flat out today, I'll get to it tomorrow mm. or yep. after the weekend or whatever it might yep. be. So, yeah. again, and it's not... Again, I'm not saying insurance companies are flat out. Uh, sorry, towing companies are flat out because they've got lots of burnout cars. Again, mm. my wife had two tyres yep. blown. People have brake uh, breakdowns on the side of the road. There are a whole range of reasons that people might yep. use a towing company. Um, the people have accidents. I mean, yeah. you see accidents on the road, and I, I saw one when I was in Canberra. Actually, there was an accident. I didn't see it happen. I just saw it mm. afterwards. But again, there would have been a tow truck coming along there. So they're busy with lots of stuff yeah. they do. So it's a it's a complicated area, and one of the things about council being council is we've got to play by the rules. Well, yeah. I certainly don't want to be the That's mayor right. of a council. As frustrating as frustrating as it is to see these burnt out cars and abandoned cars, yep. there is a process that you know, council has to legally go through. We have uh, to legally to go sure. through it, and yeah. and if you took it to the extreme, if we went and towed a vehicle before these timeframes under yeah. legislation then effectively that could be vehicle theft. Yeah, Because right. if you think about yeah, it, yeah. if I've cool. got a, a dislike of my neighbour and I, mm. I know he's going away for a, a week and mm. he's, he's not going to be there and I see the car parked at the front, mm. oh, look, I, I know this person's not here and he's left his car for weeks mm. and I've doctored a photo to make it look like that mm. and then council comes along and takes it away without going through the proper process. Mm. The person comes back from holidays going, where's my car? He's got a notice mm. from council saying, you owe us $6 for towing. Well, I just went away for a week and you've towed my car. What are you doing? Mm. You've stolen my vehicle mm. so you've got to make sure that council and again mm. as the mayor I don't want to be no. the mayor of a council that just ignores legislation doesn't no. follow the rules that's right quick little one here uh, Matt just in regards to the Tamworth Street uh, there's this roadworks uh, happening on Tamworth Street so what's a bit of an update in regards to what's happening there well I'll just say two things about Timber Street Roadworks. Yay and boo. Yeah, right, okay. We've had both reactions um, and almost as strongly as each other. Right, okay. <laughs> the problem we have, of course, as we talked about before, is that people want the roads to be perfect. I get mm. that. And mm. we've had some dry weather. We've been able to do a lot of roadworks and lots of roadworks are being done, which is absolutely fantastic. But there's inconvenience. And we talked mm. about last week with Wheels Lane, there were some people along there, some residents along there that weren't happy about not having access to their driveway for a mm. short period of time. I understand that. That's very inconvenient and a pain, but we need to do the road work. Yep. So it's all about communication, making sure people are aware of it. Along Tamworth Street, we've got some reconstruction projects. And if you want to go onto the Your Say part of our website and have a look at just some of the different information there, you'll see maps there. And there's various parts of roadworks that are going to be done between Palmer Street and Fitzroy Street on Tamworth Street. And there's various stages there that we, we go along there. Part of that is some work that's being done in front of the shops along there. I was going to say, that's all around the shopping precinct, isn't it? Not all there, but there are certainly stages there. Mm. Stage one is between Palmer and Taylor Street. Stage two is between Fitzroy and Jubilee Street. So there's different stages there. So I won't try and explain it all Mm. with audio. I'd let people have a look at that. So it's been fantastic to say, great, we're getting some of these roadworks done. They're going to take up to 13 weeks to complete all of these different okay. roadworks and different stages yep. there. And this is bad because that will affect some businesses along there and some mm. of those businesses aren't happy about that and they'd like all the works to be done at night time but then that but the makes it difficult well. for residents who yeah. want to sleep at night yeah. time. So this is the challenge we have 
I don't know there's an easy answer mm. for it. We'll it's quite unique in many ways. You know, to, to have uh, the, the shopping centre precinct set up there, but you've also got obviously the residential area there sort of sitting right on top of each other. Well, it's there are probably other places like that, so mm. I wouldn't say it's unique, but it's probably rare to have residences and businesses side mm. by side there. But mm. there are other community shopping centres. Comparatively centers. speaking to other areas around town. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Boundary Road, for example, you've got mm. the same sort of situation there. Mm. There's different situations. But again, it does create a, a challenge for us. Mm. And we'll keep working with residents and businesses there. There's no easy answer. I suppose I'm highlighting it. I'm alerting mm. people. We're going to start those works in mid-March and we want to do them because people want the roads to be better. But do, we're not do, going you to know when they're going to actually take place during the daytime? Are they going to be during working hours or are they going to be after working hours or is it yet to be I think discovered? depending on the different parts of it there, there will be okay. some work that will be done during the day and okay. it will be basically working hours of our staff more or less. Yeah. And there will be some where we might need to do some works at night as well. But again, that's more expensive for us mm. to do the works at night. So mm. it's a constant challenge. Anyway, be aware of it. There's information on our Your Say page if you want to look at that. But in general, there will be works being done up there and it will be inconvenient for people. I apologise for that, but we also want the work to be done. Now, this is uh, a little interesting one here, Matt. Uh, there's been a, or it's going to be a temporary closure of the car park at the bottom of Church Street there. So... This is down around um, the Ollie Robbins Oval precinct, that, uh, that whole new shared pathway area that's, that's being set up. Um, seems sort of coming together quite well, that area too, by the way. It's looking really, really, really good down there. Yeah, it's looking good, and we're actually doing a little bit extra there. So we had the shared pathway project that we are doing, yeah. and that was all fine. We were going through that process. But one of the things we identified during that process was that you've got the boat ramp there, which was in a pretty poor state. That wasn't part of the original project. Right. But when we looked at that, we said, well, there's not much point having this wonderful mm. pathway, this shared pathway here, and then the actual boat ramp itself is looking pretty poor. So we're actually doing that extra now. That will mean that that car park, which is at the bottom of Church Street, and I know yep. some people do park there yep. when they go for a walk or a run around Tracker Riley. So I suppose, again, this is really just notification mm. that it's that's going to be... It's a temporary closure, isn't it? Yeah, it'll be closed temporarily. Uh, and again, probably not for that long, but I suppose the important part there is just be aware of it. If that's some spot that you do go regularly to park mm. there, then just be aware that there'll be a bit of inconvenience again. It'll be... Uh, the, the plan at the moment is from Monday the 4th of March through to the 18th of March is when okay. that'll be done. But again, it all depends on weather and uh, what, what happens there. But So there'll sure. be a, a time frame there, that 14 days, couple of weeks there, where you won't have access to that car park. And again, park somewhere else, make up the arrangements, go to the bottom of Tenworth, yep. whatever. But yeah, just be aware of that. But again, that's all part of that great project there. No worries. Now... Just a, a quick little observation question just in regards to the staff numbers uh, right now with council in Dubbo and Wellington. Um, are the numbers increased since amalgamation or have they decreased since amalgamation? So it's an interesting one. One of the things you would think of is when you bring two organisations together, you'd hope that the total number of employees would drop that's part of the efficiency you'd gain. Now, mm. I'm not saying we want to sack a bunch of people, but mm. you want to, over time, as people leave, you might not replace them because you want to gain those efficiencies. And some people have asked about this because it does seem to be getting more and more expensive to run council. Mm. And have we gained anything out of the efficiencies since the amalgamation? In 20, uh, 2016, so 12th of May 2016 was the amalgamation, in Dubbo City Council, you had 375 staff. Now, that includes permanent staff and people on 
contract. So right. they might have a one-year contract or two-year contract. So basically you'd call them full-time staff, 375 mm. full-time staff. And at Wellington you had 106, Okay, again, full-time staff, full-time and, and those contract, those longer contracts. So that gives you a total of 481 between the two. You would hope that after amalgamation and after a few years now, in terms of the efficiencies gained, yep, yep. then you'd have a number lesser than that. And numbers at the moment are 519. Oh, so, is there a reason for that? or Yeah, I don't know. Well, there, there are reasons for it, and yep. I, I don't know that I put my finger on just one reason. So there's a few things. And let me just go back one step as well. Mm. Part of the process with the amalgamation is, in this scenario, Wellington, we can never have less than 106 people in the Wellington, the old Wellington Shire Council area. Never have less than that? No, that's part of the legislation. Oh. So when you have the amalgamation, right. so that you don't lose all your employees from Wellington and take them all down to Dubbo and just basically yep. pull the, uh, the okay, economic right. heart yeah, out yeah. of Wellington, yep, gotcha. you've got to keep those 106 there. And yep. you can have more than that, but you can't go less than that. So mm. maybe you don't gain all the efficiency gains that you might have gained out of that. Mm. So that's one part of it. There's no doubt about it that our green space operations has got more staff now. And there's been our open space portfolio mm-hmm. has certainly grown. Mm-hmm. So the, the more staff... I was going to say, that, is, it the, is it indicative also of the growth of Dubbo and Wellington in this process as well? or A little bit of that. Yes, there has been growth without a doubt. Mm. But I also think there's more regulatory burdens mm. on council now. And I, I suspect some cost shifting. So we, we mm. have staff... So yep. just to give you one example, we've had this discussion with the planning minister in our regional cities, New South Wales meetings. Yep. Because of the planning portal which is meant to make things more efficient and also meant to make things more transparent for Mm. the public to see what's happening, Mm. we've got an extra staff member that just deals with the planning portfolio, that that planning portal. I know Bathurst is exactly the same. They say we've got one staff member and all they do is just focus on the planning portal. Mm. And Mm. there are frustrating things with that planning portal where things don't seem to work perfectly all the time. Mm. So that's an extra staff member. I know one of those cost shifting from a state government base across to a a local. Yep, no, you're spot on there. So it's more, are we trying to cut that back? No, I think Mm. we need those services there. And so I'm not, there's no Mm. alert here going out to staff to say, start looking for another job tomorrow. But it's interesting. And I suppose that was one of the inquiries people were making. What are the staff numbers now? Well, there's numbers as of today. Okay. Bracken House, 35 years. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that they've been operating for 35 years, but congratulations to them. I noticed the fact that uh, this aged care facility uh, you um, you went along to during the week to celebrate their 35 years with uh, Dougal Saunders also there as well. Yeah, it was nice to see Dougal there. Often I ran into Dougal different things, obviously. There's times some state crossover with yep. the local. And it is nice, that organisation. I think they do a good job there. I, I go down there regularly to do some poetry there. John Mason, former member for Dubbo, is yes. a resident down there, so oh, I okay. catch up with John from time yeah. to time. Yep. And uh, I do think they do a good job but it's probably interesting to look back 35 years ago mm. there wouldn't have been a lot of aged care facilities in mm. Dubbo that's no, obviously changed been, that's right. we're living longer now yes. and the style of care is changing I remember back when I was chairman of WC Development Corporation so I'm going back to the early 2000s mm-hmm. here before I was on council and we actually did do some strategic planning to look at what Dubbo needed and what the future of Dubbo could be what were the the best things that people should be focusing on yep And one of the strategies we came up with that was just a a public strategy for people to look at and Mm. use how they needed was around aged care. We identified that people from the Western region, as they got older and they needed more health care, would probably not stay in some Mm. of their smaller communities. They would Mm. come in towards Dubbo. And as Dubbo people got older in general, and we look at it now, 
so many aged care facilities and oh, just absolutely. There's been an be, explosion of them almost, hasn't there? There's been a lot. Absolutely right. And also building up more capacity in those. Mm. And even Bracken House has built up their built mm. up their capacity over the years. So certainly again, go back thirty five years ago, I can't tell you how many aged care facilities were mm. there at that time, but certainly nowhere near the number that we have now. So mm. congratulations to Bracken House. It's a good job they do and I think in, in general most of the aged care facilities around the place seem to do a very good job and seem to have very happy residents yes. there. Well, congratulations to Bracken House for celebrating 35 years. Well, mate, it's that time of the week. It's time for your Limerick of the Week. So it's a bit a lot to get through today. Actually, we've managed to sort of discuss in some quite depth a few of those, uh, those items there today. So what have you chosen? I think there'll be more discussion to happen on this particular topic. Right. So I thought I'd start off with my limerick about the Dream Festival. Oh, nice, yes. Again, we've got committee meetings coming up, we've got council meetings, there'll be a fair few people that'll have something to say about that. So I thought that was probably the significant one out of today's discussion. So here we go. The Dream Fest with music and art. Is it time it was given a restart? Or will joy turn to fear over the coming year? Is the dream set to fall apart? <laughs> That's very clever, actually. You've done very, very well. Well, folks, that wraps up again for another Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.